0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, "'May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant for you to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me.' But Abram said to Sarai, "'Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please.' Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly have I seen him who looks after me? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi, It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram.
1: Well, good morning, church. Um, I'm obviously not Cole. Uh, He graciously allowed me to preach this morning because he and Laura need some much-needed rest. Um, So thank you to those of you that have come out. I'm Jarrett. I'm the youth and family resident for this summer. Um, As you know, the town floods with people, and as the town floods with people, one pair of hands tends to get a little bit full So, for the last couple summers, you guys have hired people like myself to get to serve um, young families and and your youth, and I'm so thankful for that. And this is probably the only time I'm going to get to address the entire church, so I also want to say simply, not just thank you for letting us serve you, but thank you so much for serving us. I can say with confidence over the last month that Julia and I, that was my wife that just read scripture, Julia and I have received as much, if not more, from you than we have given to you. So thank you. As a, as a young, small church, I hope encouragement like this fans into flame the gifts that you clearly have, and you are a generous people, and you're a hospitable people, and we have been the recipients of that as much as Cole and Laura have over the last couple weeks. So thank you. Let me pray for us before we begin, um, and then we'll get going on Genesis 16. Father, thank you for this group of people, those that have braved the storm to come here Um, your word preached. Lord, as Cole said, you are here with us, God. And I pray that you would fill my heart with your spirit, that I might not just speak my own words, but I might speak yours. And I pray that these words that we are about to hear would transform our lives, that we would remember who you are and crave you above all things. And it's in Christ we pray. Amen. So, I'm getting to know some of you slowly but surely over the summer, and some of you are getting to know me. But what very few of you know is that I grew up in a testosterone filled home. I have two younger brothers, a very macho father, and a mom that puts up with us on a day to day basis. So we grew up doing typical boy things we hunted, we fished, we fought. We occasionally broke my mom's lamps by throwing dodgeballs in the house when we weren't supposed to. So in that environment, I really didn't begin to understand women until I was married. Sorry, babe. Um, And one of the things I quickly found out about my wife and about women in general is they are incredibly tough. Um, my, My wife told me about a few months back that her and her girlfriends will lovingly, make fun of their husbands because every season um, their husbands and their wives, both of them together around the same time, get symptoms of a flu. And unlike the wives who are still cleaning, still taking care of everything, still sending the kids to school, the dads are out, right? They're in their beds, they're begging for food, and apparently there's a name for this that they all call it, and they call it the dad flu. So women are... Tough, something I didn't know growing out. Now, one of the times you see this the most is when your wives are pregnant. I have four young children. Pregnancy is a tough go, all right? And for Julia, every time it went through three cycles, right? At at the beginning of her pregnancy, the first trimester, fortunately she wouldn't get sick, but she would be so exhausted, zombie-like, and she would still have to take care of our other kids, but it was as if she hadn't gotten any sleep, and yet she powered through it. She would get a little bit of respite in the second trimester. She would start to feel normal, but her belly would start to grow, and that would bring us into the third trimester where she's lugging around a human being and still doing all the same things that she had to do beforehand. But one of our pregnancies was difficult in particular because after those three stages in our second pregnancy with Owen, she started to contract. We're excited. We had seen this before. We're expecting to go into the hospital The rhythms were normal, so we're like, all right, it's time to go. So we go to the hospital, we go into triage, and the nurse checks her, no progress. We're discouraged. For many of you that have gone through that process, that's probably one of the worst news that you can receive in that moment. A few hours later, checks her again, nothing. And after a few times of those cycles, they're like, look, you're not progressing, we got to send you home, and we are devastated. Devastated. So we go home, or we go to a hotel, actually, because we had already sent our kids off, um, thinking that we were about, or Annabelle off, thinking that we were about to have Owen, and Julia labored all night in a hotel room, crying, me crying with her, and it was a difficult moment. Now, it, it was difficult because of the logistics of it. We, we had... Set up a babysitter for our oldest so that we could be by ourselves. It was difficult because of the pain. Obviously, I didn't experience it, but Julia did. But what made that moment particularly difficult was the waiting. What we had waited for for nine months, we thought was coming in that moment, we had, again, we had to again wait for 24 hours for Owen to come. And that's what our story is about this morning, is waiting For all the logistical difficulty that Abraham goes through, what the story is trying to tell us, what the story is trying to get us to see, is to wait for the Lord, for he is faithful. Now, at a glance, as Julia just read the story, that point may not seem obvious. Nowhere does the text say, Wait for the Lord. Nowhere does this text say, He is faithful, at least not explicitly. But it screams this point. Sometimes the Bible gives us people to follow, people to mimic by showing how they do well in certain situations. We just saw that last week in Genesis 15 when the text says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But this is not one of those weeks, right? What we have here is a warning of what happens when you don't wait by looking at what Abraham does when he fails to wait On the Lord. Now, Abraham in this passage, you might be a little bit sympathetic to him, right? It's been 10 years, as Cole pointed out last week, since the initial promise. Of course, he struggled to wait on the Lord. But Abraham had just seen God Himself bind Himself to this agreement, to this promise that He had made to Abraham by by cutting a covenant with Him and walking through alone he alone would fulfill those covenant obligations. So there isn't that excuse of time anymore. Abraham knew what God promised him. And yet in Genesis 16, he still doesn't wait. And the reason that the Bible includes stories like this and colors our heroes, not just with the good, but with the bad, is to warn us. To warn us, to set a negative example, if you will, to avoid So I'm going to unpack this story in in three big chunks. Why we struggle to wait, right? This passage makes clear why is it difficult for Abraham to wait. The consequences of waiting, and by that I don't mean um, the consequences of actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. I mean what happens when we don't wait. And then it gives us hope at the end, the key, the key to waiting. So why we struggle to wait, the consequences of waiting, and the key to waiting. So why is it difficult to wait? You can sit in a line at a DMV at a restaurant for five minutes, and you can feel your stomach churn, and you can start to get frustrated. And this becomes particularly difficult, ironically, when you have a promise of something good to come, right? Promises are a little bit of a double-edged sword. Any of you that have kids know this. As soon as you promise them something, you have two stages, essentially. You have the initial jubilee, the joy, yes, I'm getting something that I want, followed probably five minutes after that by the frustration that that gift hasn't been fulfilled right there, right then in that moment because it's hard to wait. Now, this problem gets compounded if your child, if you, are in the midst of a trial. My brother came to visit us a couple days ago. Um, he, has, he has three young kids. Um, our kids are around the same age. It's really fun when you get together. And when he got there, he told me um, that the kids did great in the car. And I was like, oh, how, how, did, you, how did you work that out? Because it's a rare occasion. You know this. And he said, well, I didn't tell him where we were going. I just told him to get in the car and drove. And about 10 minutes out, I finally broke the news to them that we're going to see our cousins. And they were excited. But Brady is a shrewd man, isn't he, right? Because if he had told them at the beginning of that car ride, the trial of the two-hour car ride mixed with the excitement of the promise would have yielded the endless cycle of, are we there yet? And he shrewdly avoided that by withholding the promise. But what that illustrates is that a promise, even though it's meant to quell those anxieties in us, at times can exacerbate them, right? Right? And this is what happens to Abraham and Sarah. From the get-go of the story, when Sarah is introduced in Genesis 11, Genesis goes out of its way to say, and Sarah was Abraham's wife, and she was barren. Right? Now, in the ancient world, for a woman, barrenness was to be subhuman. Barrenness is, is the ultimate trial that a married woman would have faced at that time. Because to be a mom, to be someone who carried a child in your room, was what she thought she was made to be, and she wasn't able to fulfill that duty. She was suffering. Now, a lot of that stigma has gone away in the modern Western world, but it's not completely gone. We know something of what this looks like if you've ever seen someone struggle to conceive for long amounts of time. Julie at our church back in Louisville, Kentucky, when we first got there, we do Sunday evening services where we share various prayer requests, and I distinctly remember a particular couple every week praying the same thing, praying that God would allow them to conceive. They had tried for five years probably before we got there, and not once had they gotten pregnant. They finally get pregnant when we are there, and they have a miscarriage. And so even though there is some cultural distance between us and what Sarah experienced as a barren woman, it's not that big. We know what it is to suffer like Sarah was suffering. So it's in the midst of that suffering, and Abraham experienced it as well, right? It's in the midst of that suffering that God gives them this promise, And this promise should have quieted their fears. Sarah, I know that you are barren right now, but I'm the sovereign Lord of the universe and I can open your womb like that. But it doesn't do that, right? And this is what we see in Genesis 16. Rather than them trusting the Lord, they begin to doubt. When is this gonna happen, Lord? I'm barren, I've been barren for years, for 10 years, for more than that, right? When is this promise going to come? And then they act on their own. Sarah has this maidservant, Hagar, gives her to Abraham and says, please give me sons, give me daughters through this woman. Now we wince at that a little bit, but this is something crucial I want you to see in the text. It's not on the surface, but in that ancient world we have documents surrounding the time this document would have been written, when Genesis was written, and it kind of gives us a feel for the customs, for the laws um, that were common at that time. And what Sarah and Abraham were doing was not abnormal. If a wife could not bear children, this is often the course of action that a couple would take. And the reason this is important is because when we're waiting and we push things through on our own, 99 times out of 100, it feels reasonable, right? It feels rational. It's what you do. It doesn't feel like, oh, I'm not waiting on the promises of God. It feels like, I can bring about these promises. This is an avenue that I can take. God's clearly opened this door. It feels rational, right? Now, Abraham's doubt kind of has stages. So in 15... He gets the promises in 12 and 10 years' lapse. He's obviously to be forgiven for doubting at that point. But he's like, hey, I don't have any heirs. Eleazar of Damascus is going to be my heir. And he should have known even then, no, my son will come through Sarah. But he redoubles his efforts. God redoubles his efforts. Okay, Abraham, you don't get it. Let me promise this promise to you again and even cut a covenant with you showing that I will bring this about. But he still doesn't quite get it. All right? in that In that... In Genesis 15, he says, no, Abraham, it'll be your very own son that will be your heir. And again, he should have gotten it. It's me and Sarah's son, but he doesn't quite get it, right? God doesn't spell it out enough for him. It kind of reminds me of, you know, when your kids play lawyer a little bit with you if they're in trouble. Like my kids, they'll get a fight. One of them will hit the other, and I'll say, why did you hit your sister? Why did did you do that? I just told you not to fight, not to hit your sister. And nine times out of ten, they'll say, I didn't hit her, Daddy. I slapped her. And you're like, okay. Let me spell out every way that you can hit your sibling and forbid you from that. And Abraham's doubt's a little bit like that. God, you didn't tell me that it was through Sarah that my seed would come. It feels rational. God didn't spell it out perfectly, and there's this avenue by which I can bring about God's promise. Now, I experienced a little bit of this in my life over the last couple years. Um, Many of you know that, by God's grace, I got a job teaching at a university in Ohio. But when I went into my Ph.D., um, I was told again and again that when you graduate, you should not expect there to be a job on the other end. Those teaching jobs are rare. So halfway in, I'm thinking, okay, i got to set up some safety nets to make sure that my family is financially taken care of. Um, And so Cole and I have a mutual friend that was successful um, investing in real estate, and I thought, you know what, this is something I can do while I'm finishing out my dissertation. It'll give me some passive income, and in the long run, it'll help set up my family. All good reasons, Right? And so at the beginning, I made it a goal. I was like, okay, I'm going to do a house a quarter, let's say. And I was on pace, and then I get to my second house. I signed the contract to buy this house. I had a contractor in line to renovate it, the same one that had done our first house, and then they have to postpone the closing for three months. I'm like, okay, no big deal. This house is still worth it. I'll wait. The closing comes. The contractor starts. A month goes by, and as I'm going out there to check on them, not much progress is being made. I'm like, what's going on? So I call him. And the subcontractor that had been working on the house had passed away in a tragic accident. He had actually fall, fallen through a sunlight, not at my house, but at another project. Okay, terrible, tragic, another hiccup. This main guy gives me another contractor. I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to make it through this. That contractor took on all that guy's projects, got overloaded, wasn't able to work on my house, ended up ghosting me. All right, I'm like, Lord, what what's happening here. I'm trying to provide for my family. What, what's going on? But I'm like, alright. Persevere. I have no choice but to persevere at this point, right? So I hire another contractor. He's recommended by real estate investors that I know in the area. Um, he had done projects like the one that we were doing. He does a decent job. He gets it finished. We, we, we get to the point where we can get renters in there. It takes three months, which is a long time for these houses. When we finally get a renter in there, That renter starts finding all sorts of problems with the house, supposedly, and they refuse to pay rent every time they do. And it just goes on and on. I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? I'm trying to provide for my family at every corner. It feels like you're stymieing me from doing it. I'm trying hard. My motives aren't bad. What I'm doing is reasonable. But then in reading for this summer, Colatis going through some books by a guy named Abraham Kuyper, he's a guy from the 1800s, great. Um, if you haven't read him, you should. And the book we're reading wasn't even about finances, it was about the kingship of Jesus. And I'm going through this chapter, and in it it talks about people that struggle to set up safety nets for themselves so that they don't have to trust God. And I thought, hmm, that's a little on the nose. I, I, that is what I was doing. I had reasons to do what I was doing that were good. They were. The investments made sense. I do want to provide for my family. But at the bottom of all of it, if I was really brutally honest with myself, the reason I was doing it is so that I didn't have to trust God to provide for me. I didn't want to wait. I wanted to set up an impenetrable financial net to keep me from having to trust him. And God said, no. And I'm so thankful that he did. One of my favorite Proverbs, it's in Proverbs 30, it's a prayer. Proverbs 38 and 9 says this, it says, remove far from me falsehood and lying, and then this is the important part. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and you say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I got the second part. I didn't want to be poor. I wanted to provide for my family. I didn't get the first part, right? Don't give me too much. How many of you guys have prayed that? I haven't prayed that very often, right? And yet we have this sage in this proverb saying, God, don't give me too much because I want to be near you, right? So how do we sort this out? How do we sort this out? When we have these grand promises of God that he'll take care of us, we see these reasonable opportunities in front of us that are good. Sometimes you may not be like me, right? You may not have that motive at the bottom, but I guarantee you that there's some area in your life where you're struggling to wait and there's this voice saying, don't go forward yet. Wait. Wait for the Lord. And it's difficult to hear But what is it for you? That voice is very quiet. I knew, I knew going into this why I was doing it. The voice was quiet, right? It was subtle. I could shout it out with all the reasons that I've just labeled, but it was there. And I would encourage you this morning, if you're in that spot, listen to that voice. One of the ways you can hear it is, are you doing what you're doing out of fear, are you doing it out of faith? I was doing it out of fear. I struggled to wait. I struggled to wait on God's promises, and like Abraham, like Sarah, I tried to force my way through through what seemed to be the reasonable option. Waiting is hard because we are often in a trial. Life is hard, and God has given us good promises that we want to take hold of. But if you're forcing the issue, and you know that God is telling you to wait, don't press through. Wait for the Lord. Because what we see in the second half of this passage, not just the difficulty of waiting, but the consequences of waiting. All right, It's pretty obvious to us when we read just the action themselves that what Abraham and Sarah were doing was not good. All right, But if that weren't enough, the bottom falls out of the story And many evil things happen as a result of what seems to be a fairly innocent choice. There's strife between man and a wife, right? Once the child finally comes, Sarah isn't just mad at Hagar, she's mad at Abraham. There's a fatherless child, right? When Hagar is cast out and Ishmael is born, Ishmael is cast out with her. There's the abuse of a woman. If you look with me at um, back down at the passage, when it says that Sarah, towards the middle of the passage, mistreated Hagar, it's a little bit of a tame translation of the Hebrew and the Greek there. It's it's the same word there that me, that um, Moses later used in Exodus to describe the Egyptians' treatment of the Jews. Now this may be too much. But Sarah probably abused her physically, didn't just mistreat her, didn't just call her names, but abused her. Hagar flees, devastated. And and when we do things like this, when we don't wait on the Lord, sometimes it's not obvious to us that these things happen, but they do. With real estate, it wasn't obvious that some of these things were happening, but in hindsight, what I realized is that trying to set up that safety net, trying to um, make this seemingly innocent choice affected really every part of my life. I was constantly stressed, right? I would get distracted from writing in the mornings, which is imperative for Ph.D. students because I would get some email about something else going on when I got home, all right? I was distracted from my family, even short with them, because I had received mail, that something else had happened with this house, right? It affected my spiritual life. Lord, why, right? Why? Frustrations with God. I'm doing something good. So my, my decision, although well-intentioned, did have negative consequences. And this is what sin does, isn't it? When we refuse to listen to the direction that God is pressing us, um, it always looks good on the front end, right? It always looks good. My, my kids, when we have spiritual conversations with them, one of the hardest things for them to understand is that sin always looks enticing. The enemy is shrewd. If you've ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it's just a window into how the enemy works. He's not gonna come and say, look, jump into the pit of hell. I'm opening up for you. Sin against God. That's not how it works, all right? Just like he is clothed in light, or masquerades as an angel clothed in light, he clothes his temptations in light. They look good. Now, admittedly, like I said in my own story about real estate, that voice is often soft that tells you to wait, right? And... The enemy is hard to discern. So put those two things together. It is very likely, even with me warning you here today, that even next week you might fail where Abraham and Sarah have failed. This is hard. I will do it again. Even with that rough experience with real estate, I guarantee you there's gonna be a moment in my life where God's saying, wait, and I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And I will continue to press on. So this message can be discouraging, but the beauty of this passage is that it doesn't end with the bottom falling out, right? Look back down, if you have your Bibles open still, to the back half of the passage where God begins to deal with Hagar. So God's not just gracious to Hagar, he's gracious to Abraham and Sarah, and we'll turn to that in a moment. But let's look at how he's gracious to Hagar, right? sixteen, seven through 13 says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where you're going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. I just found that amazing. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. God was gracious to Hagar. He didn't let her suffer forever, right? And so there can be this tendency to fear the sort of consequences when we haven't refused or we haven't waited on the Lord as we should, but God will be gracious to those that you wound if you do not wait. But not only that, we kind of expect God to be gracious to Hagar. She's victimized. Of course God's going to be gracious to those that are victimized, but she's not the only one that God is gracious to. He's gracious to Sarah and Abraham, which is amazing to me. All right, Sarah and Abraham have done this horrible thing to this woman and God restores them. Now, it's not in chapter 16, but in chapter 17, God comes to Abraham again and says, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you God comes and restores Abraham. Here's the promise again, Abraham, all right? Whereas I, as a father, if I promise something to my kids, probably be tempted to be like, you know what? We're done with that. God doesn't do that. God's already bound himself to Abraham. He comes and restores him despite his sin. And he does it to Sarah, too, right? If you just look a few verses down into verse 15, God again says to Abraham, "As for Sarah, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, the barren woman. And I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Sarah gets restored too. So there can be this tendency when we see warnings like this in Scripture to just have the weight crushed down on us, which it should. Warnings are warnings, and they should warn us away from what? They're talking about. But if you're on the other side, having not waited, having pushed through, we can trust that God will be gracious to us. God will forgive us. God will restore us, as He did Abraham and as He did Sarah. So even though there are consequences of not waiting, and we should look at those consequences, God will be faithful and He will help you wait in the future in the last part. So it's it's hard to wait. We know why it's hard to wait. We see the consequences of waiting. And but how do we wait? Right? The tricky thing about waiting is it feels passive. Is it just me sitting in a chair? Right? Is it me just standing in line at a restaurant? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Caleb Connor and I were having a conversation at the beginning of this summer, he, he apparently is getting back into working out, and he said, one of my workout goals is to dead hang for two minutes. And if you've never seen people do the dead hang challenges on YouTube, you should look it up. It's wildly entertaining. Um, the long and the short of it is guys on the streets will pay any Joe Blow that's willing to hang from a pull-up bar for 100 seconds, 100 bucks. And you think, that's easy. Who can't do that for 100 seconds? But almost every one of them fails. They're sitting there hanging from that bar. The seconds clock down. The first 20 seconds, they're cool, and they're collected, and then 30 seconds go by, and they're like, how much time is left, right? And they're gripping with all their might, all right? They're not moving, but they're exerting as much effort as they possibly can to get their hundred bucks, and waiting is a little bit like that, right? There's a reason that the Bible over and over calls us to take hold of the promises of God. It takes effort. Yes, to a certain degree it's passive, but it takes spiritual, Holy Spirit powered effort. Now we can be a little bit judgy of Abraham, right? Um, Abraham, God came to you in the flesh and said, I am going to do this for you. God came to you in the flesh again and bound himself to you by covenant. How are you not waiting? But if we're honest, we do something similar, don't we? No, maybe Abraham or God hasn't cut a covenant with us individually. But how many times does God powerfully work in our lives and a day later we forget? A day later we forget that he is faithful. It happens to me so much it's embarrassing, to be honest. But there are ways through it, right? So, so how do we wait? So the first thing I would say is meditate on God's Promises and meditate on God's past actions. Now, there are plenty of past actions in the Bible. God shows his faithfulness to his people again and again and again and again. But I also want to encourage you to meditate on the ways that God has been faithful in your own lives. Because if you're anything like me, that's probably the thing I struggle with the most. Pray, talk to people. When you're taking communion up here, Don't just do it ritualistically. Communion, the bread and the wine, is intended to remind you of God's ultimate act in Jesus Christ. Work hard to make sure that is what is happening in that moment. Pray that when you eat that bread and you drink that wine, that God would remind you tangibly of his sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Form good community. That's one thing I noticed that's really powerful here. You know each other press into that. Cole and I read a book a long time ago, a decade ago, named Life, it's called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I remember one of the things that stood out to me in that book is that he he described um, how community can be so powerful because community can do something that an individual cannot do. When you're reminding yourself of the word in your head over and over, it can do some things, and you should do that, but there's something different about having a brother or sister in Jesus across the table from you and saying, remember what God has done. You can say, remember what God has done, but when your friend says it, there's power in it. So press into your community. And I need to kind of land the plane here, so I want to talk about promises can be somewhat abstract, right? Right? They're ethereal, they're somewhat out there, but one thing the Bible tries to do over and over is ground these promises, put some oomph behind them, and it almost does it the same way every time. So in Deuteronomy, God does this with the people of Israel by reminding him of his choice of Abraham back in Genesis 12. Deuteronomy 7:6 says, for you, that's Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are of the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord is your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant in steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Translation God loves you. God chose you, Abraham, because he loves you, not because you're great, not because you had something to offer. And if you remember Cole's sermon from Genesis 12, Abraham was a pagan. He worshipped the moon. If anything, he was an enemy of God, and God chose him. And The same is true of us. Those of you who have turned to Jesus in faith and repentance, God loves you not because you have done anything to earn that love. He loves you simply because he loves you. And time and again, God reminds us of this by saying, and you don't think I'll keep my promises? I chose you when you had nothing. Are you struggling with sin? You should fight that sin, yes. All that's well and good. But that's not going to cause me to break my promise to you. I chose you when you were at your worst. The Bible is consistent in this logic. God loves us because he loves us. And though waiting is hard, we can trust him because he chose us when we were nothing. Now, Um, When Owen was born, when we were in that hotel room, eventually labor progressed, and we went back to the hospital. We were very thankful for that. We had a very competent nurse. She made us feel calm after a terrible night, but something started to happen. She started to roll Julia over, go to the heart monitor, roll her over again, go to the heart monitor. Now, I'd only had one kid, Um, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what was going on. But I realized pretty quickly that every time Julia would contract, Owen's heart rate would go down. So on top of the night we just had, our wait was not over, and we felt that panic moment again, right? But after a little bit of that, this nurse was great, kept Julia from getting a C-section. Owen comes out. Turns out he was tangled in his umbilical cord, which is scary. But all that anxiety, all that waiting melted. All that emotion became joy. And it's because Joy and I weren't just waiting, right? We were waiting for our son, and he was here. Abraham was not just waiting. He was waiting for his son, and although it's on our passage this morning, eventually all his emotion, all his doubt is gone. And that can be true of us as well. That moment that Abraham experienced when Isaac finally came, that moment that Julie and I experienced when the wait was finally over for Owen, is what heaven will be like for eternity. Now hopefully some of you guys get to experience respite here and now, but it doesn't happen to everyone. Some of you will not receive rest here and now. Maybe retirement now eludes you because COVID upended your job. Maybe that you now that you're retired, you have a terminal illness or a sick loved one or an estranged loved one. But one day God will all put that all right and the waiting will be over. So wait for the Lord because he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. I pray if there are anxious hearts in the room struggling to wait on you, that you would give them the strength, the power, the courage by your spirit to wait on you. Let Abraham's actions, let Sarah's actions serve as a warning to us. Be gracious to us, O God. And when we don't wait, be gracious to us. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. It's in Christ we pray, amen.